0: the editor of Royals Review, Max Reaper. Uh, later on in our episode, we'll be joined by Sean Newkirk and Matthew Lamar. And we're going to talk about the really devastating news this week that Salvador Perez had Tommy John surgery and will be out for the year. And we'll also talk about other updates uh, of spring training and what the Royals have been up to this year. Uh, but for right now, I wanted to kind of preview the divisional opponents for the Royals. We're going to start with the Chicago White Sox. Uh, we're lucky enough to be joined by Brett Ballantini. Uh Brett is the editor of Southside Sox which is also part of the SB Nation network of blogs. Brett, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Max. Cool. Well, the uh, the Royals actually opened the season against the White Sox for the second year in a row on March 28th, and uh, we thought that maybe the White Sox might bring some added firepower and some star power to the lineup uh, because there were some several rumors this year that they were uh, uh, interested in adding Manny Machado and Bryce Harper, or Bryce Harper, I should say, um, two of the you know, premier free agents on the open market. Ultimately, they were not able to land either of those players, with Machado signing with the Padres and Harper signing with the Phillies. Uh, Brett, what was kind of your take on how that process played out for the White Sox, and what's kind of the fan reaction to not not uh, landing either of those players?
1: Ooh, you've hit on the story of the spring for the White Sox and the White Sox fans, of course, because we have not much else to speak of, and we were lusting after an actual potential future Hall of Fame players to add to the lineup. And you said Machado or Harper, we were even crazy enough and led to believe that perhaps could have even been Manny Machado and Bryce Harper on the south side. Now, of course, we ended up failing miserably Uh, in terms of both guys. uh, It seems like even a lot of the, uh, you know, whether it's Las Vegas odds, I think there were even uh, computer simulations that were running that the, the White Sox had upwards of an 80% chance of signing Manny Machado. So as every day went by, as long as this process went, and it was pretty agonizing, as every day went by, I think White Sox fans were feeling more and more comfortable with the fact that Manny Machado was going to join the White Sox for five, eight, ten years. There are all those crazy tweets and rumors going on about it. And, you know, I think the prevailing uh, uh, feeling among fans is, you know, obviously that the White Sox blew it, that upper management really blew the opportunity, had a chance to nail down uh, Machado maybe before even year's end by just meeting what his demand was, wanting to be a $300 million player or maybe a little bit north of that, Uh, sort of let it sit, maybe even uh, low ball them a bit, you know, and then there was debate about are you going to bid against yourself if you, you know, you up that bid. You know, as you can tell by me trying to explain this, this is a mess, and the state of White Sox fandom is uh, is pretty angry. I think there's a feeling of betrayal. You know, at first, I think if you'd asked anybody this time, uh, at this time last year, despite the fact that the White Sox had engaged in some trade talk for Manny Machado. Uh, the chances of them being in the catbird seat to sign him uh, come say November, I don't think anybody would have would have signed on to that. So the fact that we suddenly became you know one of the leading contenders for Machado or even Harper, I think it was such a pleasant surprise. It really was like an early Christmas, and uh, the fact that then they sort of <laughs> proceeded then to fumble it away uh and, you know it's just you know it's, it's a, i think there's some bitterness in the fact that there was really no plan b plan c plan d and this team looks much more ready to win uh, to, to lose another 100 games than to to even creep up to that uh you know 72 75 win level that would have been a nice next step in the rebuild i think it just make made people there's just a lot of frustration with the white Sox right now
0: yeah it's interesting i that I think owner Jerry Reinsdorf has kind of been his reputation has been kind of a hardliner against free agency at least giving out massive contracts you know he's very instrumental uh, in kind of driving owners to the work stoppage in, in 94 uh, so what was the kind of the impetus between behind him uh, behind the White Sox suddenly getting jumping in with with both feet on on some of the premier free agents that I mean you know the cost would have been 300 million dollars or more uh, what, what was kind of the behind the, the driving force behind that I think it was
1: uh, opportunity. I mean, I don't think that uh, Rick Hahn or Ken Williams would have actually gone to the cafeteria and picked Machado up off the, uh, you know, as one of their selections. But the fact that there was just no competition, you Yankees bowed out, mm-hmm. Dodgers bowed out, so many of the big players either were already set at those positions, or there was just no competition. So they, I, in a sense, perhaps they were even backed into it. Uh, you know, there was a, a somewhat controversial uh, uh SoxFest comment by uh, Rick Hahn saying, you know, like how the White Sox are happy to be at the table and they and you know they deserve a seat at the table with this free agent talk, which I probably was sort of taken out of context and said wrong by him, but it does sort of uh, reinforce this notion that the the White Sox are this uh, small market, you know, little baby team, uh, uh, you know, a four A team instead of a major league team, and the fact that they couldn't actually drive this home. Surprise or not, great opportunity. You know him falling into our laps or not, or not, but actually couldn't get the job done, and then got beat out. I and mean, there's a whole aspect of the fact that it's the San Diego Padres that signed mm-hmm. Manny Machado. At least with Philadelphia, you can say, all right, they were talking about the stupid money, and that's certainly a, a big boy, big market team. But the fact that the San Diego Padres sniffed out an opportunity, very clever in terms of you know or sneaky, whatever it was, in terms of getting him in. And talking to him, and then beating the White Sox offer and signing the players, just it's just like an extra insult to all of this injury. So uh, um, yeah, really, I think it just was the opportunity. There was no competition. If the Red Sox and Yankees and Dodgers were thrown in on this, we would have been so far from Manny Machado, uh, you know.
0: Yeah, and you and you mentioned kind of how the the uh, signing like that could have kind of accelerated their the rebuild a little bit. Now, I kind of want to get your take on where the White Sox are with the rebuild because I feel like the White Sox are kind of where the Royals, you know, it's kind of the same process the Royals want to take. And the White Sox started their rebuild a little bit before the Royals did. And so it's almost like we're kind of looking in the future of what what could be. Now, I think the White Sox have been a lot more aggressive about, you know, trading assets like Chris Sale and Adam Eaton to get super great prospects while the Royals haven't really done that. But what's kind of your take on where the White Sox are in the rebuild and, and what's kind of the timeline they see on getting back into contention?
2: Yeah, we
1: had a real interesting uh, uh, article a few days ago on site uh, by one of our writers, Darren Jackson, who uh, who did compare or just wanted to get a sense of where the White Sox were in terms of you know in the context of the three, I guess, most applicable teardown rebuilds, which of course is Kansas City's, uh, Houston's, and the Cubs, and I think the comparison to the Royals is most apt not only because we operate as a smaller market team as the Royals generally do. Um, but in terms of the state of it, I don't know. Uh, stalled. I mean, we've had we've we've suffered some rough injuries uh, with uh, Kopech, Michael Kopech getting the, the Tommy John surgery. Uh, Dane Dunning, another uh, guy you'd probably slot maybe right behind Kopech in terms of uh, future starter potential, has been dealing not with TGS but TGS potential with the forearm soreness and stuff that's making everybody nervous. Uh, Luis Robert, uh, you know, Cuban sign, who is just really struggled with injury pretty much from the moment of signing. Uh, again, just sort of like messed up his thumb a little bit and I guess it's minor, but you know, that was a thumb injury that kept him out most of last season. So injuries have been a big theme. Uh, unfortunately, you know, among the guys who have managed to not be injured, you know, the Tim Anderson's at shortstop, uh, Moncada, Mankata, who's now switched, I guess, from second to third base. Um, some of the young, uh, the, you know, the young arms, uh, Ronaldo Lopez and, and Lucas Giolito. Uh, nobody's really taken a big step forward, and obviously that's going to have to be part of this too. You can't just keep waiting, uh, you know, for Santa to come down the chimney and bring all the, you know, the great new prospects up. Yeah, and then there's a controversy, of course, service time. We have our service time issues here uh, on the south side as well with uh, Eloy Jimenez being kept down, purportedly to work on his defense. Um, you know, of course this is a guy I think I mentioned could be playing out on the field naked and with no glove and should be in our lineup based on the fact that he's going to just maul the ball. He's sort of our baby Frank Thomas. And, uh, you know, you combine all these factors uh, and it just seems like the window of opportunity, this so-called window of opportunity gets pushed back and some of that can't be controlled by upper management. Obviously injuries is something that's really difficult to get a handle on, but, um, I think we are in delay mode. We are circling over the airport, unable to land uh, our next step in the rebuild. So I'm afraid that 2019 might be too much more of a Xerox copy of a 2018 than any White Sox fan would like.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, the team didn't land, you know, the upper top free agents, but they did add some pieces, uh, you know, certainly more than and and spending more money than certainly like a team like the Royals did. They added Kelvin Herrera, an old friend of ours, uh, to a two-year, $18 million deal also brought in yonder Alonzo outfielder John Jay, who spent last year in Kansas City, as well as uh, Ivan Nova of the pirates um, what's what's kind of your take on on those moves just in, in, as a whole and and uh, are they just kind of stop gaps to uh, until like some other guys from the farm system come up or are they trying to are, is our there, is there goal of like maybe being more competitive this year in Chicago?
1: Yeah, I just hit you with that depressing monologue about the Machado signing and completely avoided mentioning the fact that they traded for Yonder Alonso and John Jay, presumably, uh, or signed John Jay, presumably, to uh, help entice Manny Machado to Chicago. <laughs> when, in fact, it seems like he it didn't, not only failed to deliver him to Chicago, but actually sold him on San Diego. So that plan didn't work out. You know, Alonzo is—he's just his duplication on the White Sox, and again, you know, what turns out in uh, probably not even in retrospect, but certainly now to be a awful decision to trade for him because it helped get some uh, of the uh, the the salary weight out from under Cleveland, and perhaps allowed them to keep their big three uh, arms in the starting rotation intact for 2019. So, sort of helping them in, in hurting us and helping them. Not the wisest move. Uh, John Jay, you know, is going to get to play for the White Sox because they just don't really have any outfielders. Certainly not any outfielders who can catch the ball aside from uh, Adam Engel in center field. So, uh, you know, the, the moves have been pretty, you know, weak. They traded for uh, Ivan Nova, um, who's, you know, he's a fourth starter. I guess he's going to give some innings. I people are sort of likening him to the, playing a James Shields role, eating innings. I don't think he's quite going to be that much uh, uh batting practice fodder but you know he also doesn't have some of the um uh, you know the achievements in his career as James Shield had had so you know that's a fourth fifth guy uh who's probably going to get pushed up to third fourth in this White Sox rotation which is fairly awful Uh um, so you know the 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 additions at the back end of the bullpen, Herrera and getting uh, Calome from uh, uh, Seattle in trade—you uh, know that's going to help. I think we actually have some semblance of an adult bullpen this year with uh, three, four reliable back end arms. So that's one area that you could maybe really mark for improvement on the White Sox. But the wisdom of acquiring, you know, two guys who can save games in Herrera and Calome for a team that will be lucky to win 70, 75 games is is curious. Uh, I'm not really sure what that strategy is. Uh, It seems odd. I suppose flippable candidates at the trade deadline is, is I guess, what we're going to angle for now that there's no Machado, no Harper, no Eloy Jimenez to start the season. So uh, I guess they have the ability to shift on the fly with whatever strategy brought them in in the first place. Uh, I do think the team in October, November aspired to uh, really make a nice leap and secure at least a a nice second-place standing in the division, in a division that is really wide open. But um, that's not going to happen now, so uh, we'll see what plan B or C or D is because we're in it right now.
0: (laughs) And I should also note, this is not a notable transaction anywhere else but probably Kansas City, but the White Sox did also let Matt Davidson go, uh, the guy that absolutely destroyed Royals pitching last year didn't do anything else much much of anything else against anyone else but um just clobbered it seemed like he clobbered a home run in, in uh every single game he faced against the Royals so I think royals fans will be happy to see him uh, no longer uh playing for the white sox uh let's uh I, I just got my opening day tickets uh what you know when the white sox take the field what's kind of the starting lineup that you anticipate uh us seeing out there on on day one and what are some maybe roster battles that are that are still up for grabs
1: well, uh, Wellington Castillo, uh, presuming he will not be uh, funded for any sort of PED thing like he was last year, will be the starting catcher, get most of the reps there. His backup's James McCann, which is a uh, another odd signing made by the White Sox when there are plenty of real catchers out there. They chose to give a major league guaranteed contract to James McCann, so he'll be backing up Castillo. Uh, Jose Abreu is first baseman, DH. Uh, Yonder Alonso and, and Abreu will sort of flipped between uh, first and, and, and DH this year. Uh, second base had been Jan Moncada, but now uh, they've, they've flipped positions with uh, Yomer Sanchez, who was the third baseman last year. He'll be playing second base this year. Tim Anderson's at shortstop. is uh, over at the third base. Of course, the White Sox are pinning a lot of hope on him to cut down his 217 strikeouts from a year ago and, and start to fulfill a little bit more of his uh, potential. You know, He had a solid enough season last year, but uh, really needs to take a step forward for the team to feel real good or a little brighter about the rebuild. Uh, left field, I believe, is just going to be um, kept warm for Eloy Jimenez when he comes up once his service time clock clicks over which should be pretty early in the season, but who knows how much defense he does have to work on at Triple uh, A Charlotte. We don't know, but probably to begin the season, you might have a Nicky Delmonico out there in left field. Uh, center field would seem to be uh, Adam Engel, who absolutely cannot hit, but fields the heck out of the ball, so that's one out of two. Uh, right field, uh, Daniel Polka is batting a little hamstring injury this spring, but uh, he was a really nice surprise, both uh, performance wise in terms of his power numbers and clutch numbers and his personality. He actually made a miserable season, um, you know, a little bit more pleasant with some really surprising performance in right field. I think that probably takes, uh, I mean, I've scraped enough debatable minor leaguers into that lineup to have that be a true read on what the opening day will be for the white sox and yes no matt davidson you guys are <laughs> lucky to give you a nice chance probably to sweep that opening series because there will be no matt davidson harassing you with a three homer game on opening day
0: we should probably uh, as royals fans familiarize ourselves with jimenez a little bit aloy jimenez one of the top prospects in all of baseball you say he's probably not gonna be up until you know they can game a service time a little bit but tell us a little bit about him his game like who what the uh, kind of profiles like as a hitter and as a, as an athlete? Um, what kind of what kind of what should we expect with Alohi Menas once he gets to the big league level?
1: Well, of the uh, several, I think at least three trades or cons made of trading uh, viable all stars for prospects to jumpstart the rebuild, which is one way the White Sox rebuild is significantly different from uh, those other three teams I'd mentioned earlier, including the Royals. Alohi uh, came over along with Dylan Cease another true true blue chip prospect who's a guy who we're probably gonna see in the starting rotation by the end of the season uh came over in a trade for Jose Quintana with the Chicago Cubs. So this is a <laughs> this is appearing to be an actual big win for Rick Hahn and that he's getting two true futures superstar players uh for a pitcher who's somewhat been on the wane since leaving the South side. Uh Eloy's got the big, big bat. Um he's definitely a corner outfielder. I liken him to Frank Thomas and we think of Frank Thomas as being sort of more the you know, the lumbering guy, perhaps we saw toward the end of his career, D H only guy who couldn't field. Uh but you know, even at the beginning of Frank, you know, Frank was a tight end in college. I mean he, he could run a bit. Um I think he did actually grab a few stolen bases in his career. Eloy reminds me a lot of him. You know, obviously the big bat is the the real way the two can be likened. But uh, you know, can probably field a spot better. Um, they talk about him perhaps playing right field, but he seems like he's going to be a fit for left field. And with the stock of outfielders the White Sox have in the minors, probably their positional strength that's that's best in their system. Uh, he could be a guy who eventually, or maybe even quickly, could get pushed, perhaps even to a first base. But uh, just a huge bat, his hit you know, at every level, um, guy who people clamored for mid-season last year, about at least by the time they 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 called up Michael Kopech in, in later July, you know, he should have been up, he should have been getting some reps, but, you know, they chose to keep him down for the service time issue. And I believe, you know, the good news at least is I think it's only going to be two, three weeks into the season before technically, you know, the bell will ring and he'll be able to come up to the White Sox. And so hopefully everything goes right with, With injury, he's had a little bit of injury issue, but uh, hopefully he stays healthy this spring and early season so uh, White Sox can get him up here. And It's the one thing this season that's going to really bring the most fan interest because he really seems like a true superstar in the making, and, boy, Lord knows the White Sox need one of those. (laughs)
0: And it's really a shame that uh, guys like that have to start the year in the minors just because teams want to save a little money, and that's just why baseball needs to reform the uh, the service time, uh, the way they game service time right now. Um, you know, you mentioned the there are injuries in, in, in the pitching staff a little bit, so I'm sure the rotation is, is quite a bit in flux, and I'm sure there's p- some battles in spring training, but what's kind of your best take on what the rotation's going to look like for the White Sox when the season starts?
1: Well, flatly said, bad. But uh, you know our our opening day starter is likely to be the most you know veteran arm. I guess at least certainly veteran White Sox arm, Carlos Radon, um who was came back from soldier, uh, shoulder surgery uh, last year. I don't I want to say about May. He, he came in you know mid-season-ish, was really strong uh, in his in his return up until September. It seemed like he ran out of gas there. So hopefully he's had a chance in the off season just sort of like recover. This is going to be his first hopefully um full injury free season um and that could be real good things he's, he's a guy I could surprise his you know his numbers overall last year weren't all that great he hasn't done a, a ton in his career to to merit certainly ace status but he's our best shot uh renaldo lopez is, is likely your number two uh real strong near last year sort of pitched well beyond his peripherals uh you know a guy whose numbers should have been a lot worse than they were than they turned out to be um and you know he's got he's got ace or at least you know one two three stuff lucas giolito uh another guy who came over from the washington nationals in the the trade of adam eaton over there there's another guy in rotation and he sort of had the opposite luck of of uh lopez last year and he was just simply awful um never really seemed to figure it out guy who's got an electric arm but seemed to maybe not have the gas he needed to last year uh he can be thrown at ninety five the way he needs to be. Um, you know, his results will be, you know, better, and maybe him and Lopez can at least have say average starter seasons. And then you've got No Nova, you know, more of a known quantity. Um, you know, he'll he'll you know, workman like performance, I suppose. And the fifth uh fifth spot is up for grabs like it is on both teams. You know, the White Sox uh, made an early trade in the off season for Manny Banuelos, a uh, long time top prospect, uh, dating back to the Yankees. Um, and, you know, I think they want him to be their first starter. He's gotten shelled, I think, in one spring start so far. Or not really shelled. I think he gave up no hits, but, I don't know, four runs or something, he managed to walk and hit people left and right. So uh, that's in flux. Uh, Dylan Kovey was a guy who, who actually was pretty remarkable in spots. I believe he faced down Chris Sale in Fenway last year and beat him. Uh, so he's a guy who's got potential to at least be a spot starter at, at in the fifth spot. But now I'm really starting to get into names that, that have to be putting the audience to sleep. So let's just wrap up the <laughs> rotation by, it's not gonna be that good.
0: Well, and that sounds like a similar situation the Royals are in and and, and the Tigers too for that matter. And so you know, the the projected the projected standings from from fan graphs and baseball perspectives have kind of those three teams bunched together. They have the White Sox, uh Pekoda has the White Sox at seventy wins. So does fan graphs just a touch better than the Royals and the Tigers What's kind of your prediction on on how the White Sox will finish and what what, what would kind of be constitute a successful season for the White Sox uh, you know to the fan base and to yourself
1: I think realistically because fans had no choice I'm not a, I'm not a rebuild guy but I mean you know I mean what choice do you have and, and certainly we're in it now so you got to follow it and I think for this season, everything else to the side for getting injuries and, and so forth you know we would we would have needed to see a step now i mean obviously from from 62 wins we needed to see a step into the 70s to, to feel like the next step was being taken in the rebuild so you could be realistically thinking at least playoffs if not being a favorite you know early in this next decade the injuries and some of the failures with uh you know transactions not even the machados but not even being able to to shift and, and maneuver and perhaps get a Ismani grandal uh, you know to, to catch this young staff or you know even the, you know there's a second tier out there that the white Sox seem to completely skip uh you know i still think the expectations need to be getting into that 70 win area i don't know that they're going to have success doing that i i you know it's, maybe it's a murphy's law thing maybe i'm just getting real sad sack based on the free agency failures and so forth and the fact that the mood around the team and towards the team is so dark right now uh, I think it's going to be hard for them to even get to that uh, uh, 70 you know of course things can turn really well you know uh, Tim Anderson seems to be a guy who's got all-star potential Mancada is a guy who could certainly have all-star potential Uh, Eloy Jimenez could come up and energize the team Uh, I mean if if things all uh, um, fall correctly And it certainly helps to have Detroit and Kansas City in the same division. Obviously, Kansas City taking such a big injury hit uh, just a a day or two ago. That's going to help. You know, (laughs) the division's incredibly lousy. Uh, But that's not going to account, you know, solely for getting deep into 70 wins. So, I mean, I think realistically, I think fans, if if we could even get to 75 wins, that that would be pretty remarkable. Um, The fact that it's debatable whether we even get to that. You know, those uh, uh, metric uh, predictions of 70 wins, that's really up in the air, too. I mean, I think right now most fans would be thinking, you know, maybe we add five, seven wins till last year and maybe creep close to 70 and not quite get there. So, uh, you know, again, not exactly energizing the fan base, you know, with the s- sober realizations that there have been some injuries and, and some things have fallen through in terms of the transactions and jump-starting, uh um you know, the rebuild and, and a push to the playoffs. But this idea that somehow this season could have been this weird outlier where we, you know, become the, I don't know, the, the Cubs of 2015 or or maybe the, the Royals, well, I don't know, if it was 2014, or, you know, uh, sort of catch a wave and, and push toward 500. And this division, who knows, pushing towards 500 could get you in playoff contention, I, I don't think is anything realistic to expect for this year. And that would have certainly been a pipe dream hope going into the year. And I think that's been pretty well dashed.
0: And it's interesting to to see the Royals, Tigers, and and, uh, White Sox all kind of doing this rebuild process together, and and, and they've kind of done it in different ways. I feel like the White Sox have taken a much different approach than the Royals. I think the White Sox Sox have taken an approach that I think a lot of readers on our board wish the Royals would, would do, maybe a little more aggressively shopping some of the veterans. But, uh, you know, each team is kind of doing a different way. And it'll be interesting to see how, how each kind of develops with the rebuild. And I think this will be a pretty pivotal year, I think, for each franchise. So, uh, be uh, you know, it may be kind of a a, a bad season to watch uh, if you're expecting a lot of wins for those teams. But uh, certainly a lot to keep your eye on uh, for the future of the franchise. So, uh, Brett, thanks so much for joining us and, and telling us about the White Sox. And, and you want to tell us a little bit about your site and how we can follow you?
1: Well, we're SouthsideSox.com. Uh, we have a very active and feisty uh, Twitter account, which is the same, just with the at sign in front. Uh, I like to man that and uh, stir up a little trouble here and there every once in a while because, what the heck, there's not any winning baseball to watch, so let's just uh, be, <laughs> be feisty and crack jokes. Uh, but, yeah, we've got a, a really a talented staff of writers, like most of the SB Nation sites do, and, uh, you know, we do a lot of stuff with the minors, obviously, you know a, a lot of focus on the minor leagues so we're really trying to devote a lot of attention to that so if you are a fan of young players on other teams that aren't the royals you would love south side <laughs> so those three or four people out there who are interested in that come on by and check out our, our minor league reports during the season but uh, we put a lot of content out there we have a lot of fun at Southside side so if uh, you're ever in the mood to uh to shop the visiting team uh for uh for a series or so uh, you'll have some fun on Southside Sox. socks
0: yeah i think we definitely like to have that feisty attitude too especially when the team's losing so many games and making questionable decisions so i definitely can relate to that but that, brett thanks again so much for, for joining us today thanks max all right I'm now joined by Sean Newkirk, one of our writers and the co-host of this podcast, as well as Matthew Lamar, the assistant editor. How are you doing, guys? Doing great. Hi, Max. Hi, fans. (laughs) Well, (laughs) uh, we shouldn't be, I guess, so jubilant because uh, we got some bad news this week. Salvador Perez uh, injured his right elbow. He had Tommy John surgery on Wednesday. He is out for the entire season. Uh, In response, the Royals signed free agent Martin Maldonado. We'll talk about him in a little bit. But first... I want to touch upon the loss of Salvi, what it means for this club and Matthew, you know, I, I don't think even the most optimistic Royals fans were going to expect the Royals to contend this year. So it's not like this is costing them, uh, you know, a division title, but you know, what does this loss mean for the Royals? This is still, you know, pretty significant impact for them. You think,
2: I mean, it depends on, I think on how you define the impact, right? So um, the, the thing is, like you said, there were, probably going to do anything with him or without him so on a like uh, what happens in the uh, season impact probably not not a lot right the Royals are going to lose 70 or they're going to win 70 games instead of 73 games or whatever you know that's that's not a big deal Um, what it is kind of a big deal is um, you know for young teams like the the leadership that Salvador Perez has and the experience that he has is important Um, And also specifically with how many young pitchers the Royals have, I do think it's important and helpful to have somebody like him, you know, um, be a guy that can help these pitchers, um, you know, be be the best that they can be, their best selves, if you will. Um, So I do think that's, you know, that's a pretty big loss. And also the other thing is, like, there's just going to be less interesting without – salvi you know when he went down at the beginning of last year it was like it's just it's just not that that fun without him salvador Perez is just such a fun you know person and a fun player you know um so it's really mixed i would say um you know i'm not sure if if it matters in the short term but it might matter in the long in the long run you know but also it's hard to quantify that sort of stuff right Like, how much better would Jake Junis be if he had another season of Perez? Like, you don't really know. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about the long term,
0: too, because I think, you know, Sean, some people were talking about how this might be a good thing for Salvi's knees to get, like, a whole year off after the way Ned Yost has really, um, you know, overworked in the last couple years. But on the other hand, you know, UCLA injuries are no joke. Uh, Jay Jaffe at Fangraphs had a really good article about uh, you know how catchers that that had tommy john surgery you know typically they decline pretty pretty uh quickly after that um you know what, what is, is this going to be a concern going forward and do you think salvi is going to be even catching two three years from now or or is this just maybe something that he'll bounce back from and, and we won't have to worry about going forward
3: yeah i don't know i mean like yeah it saves him the knee but then there's uh I mean, it also, in theory, weakens his arms. So it's like, okay, well, what would you rather have? I mean, you know, he it, it, it's probably a net even either way because it's not like he's just sitting. There's a difference between D for a year and, you know, having, you know, uh, surgery, uh, elbow surgery. Um, and so... That's the big difference is that it's like, okay, so yeah, I mean, it helps him out a bit on the knee, but then again, it also hurts. One of his strongest points was uh, how well he threw the ball and, you know, controlled the runner. So, I don't know. I think it's basically net even. Um, and I don't know if he's ever going to be – I mean, he just doesn't hit enough to be a DH. And, I mean, he runs like Albert Pujols, and I think he – I don't know. He, he doesn't hit like our current day Albert Pujols, but he's not that far off on some years when he's posting, you know, 90 WRC+. plus. So, I don't know. I, I still think that – I, th- I think that obviously they think uh maybe Melendez as a long-term, longer term option because um, Perez is due up in 2021. So only call it three more years from now. And that's probably right around when Melendez uh, joins up. So I don't know. I-, I still think, I don't know if this changes anything really um, because I don't even see Melendez making the majors until 2021 to begin with, if he ever does.
0: Yeah. And catchers are kind of hard to project going forward anyway, because it's like a, a, a foul tip can kind of like, you know, render one of their seasons, you know, gone, wipe it out. Uh, so, so I've seen some catchers, you know, I kind of grew up in the era of like Bob Boone and Carlton Fisk catching into their forties. Oh uh, yeah. But the, you know, on the other hand, we've seen like Matt Wieters went from an all-star catcher to like signing a minor league deal in just like a couple of years. So um, yeah, catchers, I mean, it seems like when it goes, it just goes pretty quickly. Uh, so we'll have to see with Salvi. Hopefully he can bounce back from this. You know, he's a big guy. He's a, Guy that's you know really overcome a lot of injuries in his career, uh, so you you got to figure his pain threshold's pretty high. Uh, but uh, you know I'll we'll be cheering for him and, and hoping he can rehab and be ready for the 2020 season. In the meantime, we're gonna be uh, we're gonna have Martin Maldonado as our catcher. The Royals signed him to a one-year, 2.5 million dollar deal with 1.4 million in incentives. And the 32-year-old last year spent uh, time with the Astros and Angels. Uh, he had 225 with a 276 on base and 351 slug, 9 home runs in 119 games. Offense is not his strong suit. He's cl- clearly here for his defense. Uh, he was a 2017 Gold Glove award winner. He is known as one of the, uh, one of the best pitch framers in baseball and he also threw out uh, 48% of his runners uh, last year, which is tops in all of baseball just ahead of Salvi. So, really solid defender, Sean and um you know, that's kind of what the Royals are banking on right now. You know, ultimately is this a good sign was this a good sign by the Royals?
3: I um I don't know. Another one of those and I mean it's a two and a half million dollar deal, so it's hard to slap on. I mean if it's Mike Trout for two and a half million dollars, yeah, but if you know Malvinado for two and a half, it's yeah, it's kind of neutral ish, I think. Um, I mean he can't hit very well, but you know, he's a pretty good pitch framer and a good defender overall. Uh, but, you know, there's also a little bit of an opportunity cost where, you know, I don't think we really expected cam gallagher to be a good hitter in the you know the the future catcher necessarily but at least you've you know you've got um who's you know for sure now not going to um get much mlb time you would imagine um with malvinado and gallagher kind of sharing it in some capacity so um i I, there's a bit of a balance there but i don't know I, i think it's pretty neutral overall as well it's nothing to be too excited about um i'm actually working on something right now to see if good pitch framers actually end up helping develop younger pitchers, um, which I think is going to be the often, you know, talk about having Malvin Otto in there and what he can bring. So uh, we'll see, but I don't know. Not, yeah. Yeah. There was jumping c- on the moon.
0: Yeah. Well, man, Matthew, like of our readers, I was getting quite a bit of backlash against the signing just because they wanted to see those younger guys and see what the, you know, what the uh, Cam Gallagher and Mabers Valoria could do. And, you know, Valoria's, coming up all the way from high A-ball, uh, so I can see why the Royals maybe didn't want to rush him to the big leagues, but, um, I don't know, did you, do you think the Royals, in a rebuild, does it make sense to bring on a guy like uh, like Maldonado, or should they just go young and, and, and see what, what guys can do?
2: Um, I think that signing Maldonado was fine. Um, like I said earlier, um, you know, you get the... Uh, the ability of like a veteran guy who can help your team, help your pitchers. You know, he's not Perez, but he's you know, if you were doing like, you know, the the best choice version of Salvador Perez, like he's he's it. Um so that's they're the worst players certainly to to get. And for two and a half million, like it's just you can't really be angry at anything for two and a half million for one year. The only problem is if like that person is um You know, taking the place of someone who should have a spot otherwise. But if you think about it, like the Royals, you know, we're talking about Valoria now because the Royals made, you know, um, the Royals called him up last year. But if the Royals didn't call him up last year, nobody would be saying, oh, you know who would be a good choice? Valoria. No one's saying that. You know, Gallagher is clearly a guy that you want there. But, you know, somebody's going to get injured along the way. And if you already are pretty down to your, like, two only MLB caliber catchers, right, um, and somebody gets injured, then if Gallagher gets injured, then what, you know? Um, I – it sort of makes more sense to sign a veteran in a case like this where your depth is pretty thin at catcher, at least close to the major league level, um, and also, you know, catcher is one of those positions where they have a lot of impact in the the pitching staff. So, I'm I'm totally fine with it. Um, I like you like you, Max. I'm kind of confused why people like dislike it actively. I can understand like being neutral about it, or even like not warm on it. But to like dislike that move, I I just there's just so many better uses of outrage in 2019. Uh, <laughs> sports or non-related, you know, sports or non-sports related. So. I I'm I'm fine with it. It's cool. It'll make them more palatable, at least you know. Well, I I do get the feeling,
0: you know, I do get the the, the response of like, hey, I want to see what Cam Gallagher can do, and, and you know, let's right. let's not fool ourselves. Cam Gallagher is not like some great prospect that has a really good chance of being a really solid catcher for many years in the big leagues. You know, he's a nice quad A guy who, you know, if he gets a shot, maybe he. Exceeds expectations. You know, when Whit Merrifield exceeded expectations, but of course, that's more the exception than the rule. But, you know, Michael Augustine had a really good article last week about Cam Gallagher's pitch framing and how he's actually pretty good at that. Um, And so, because of that and because of his youth, I kind of want to see Gallagher at least in a bigger role than, like, you know, the Sunday starter. So I hope Maldonado doesn't play too much. And I know it sounds like he's already going to be the. The starter, but I hope Gallagher still gets a chance to play, you know, two three times a week and and show mm-hmm. what he can do a little bit uh, because you never know and he could prove himself to be a pretty solid uh, catcher. But I yeah, I do agree with you; they needed to have depth in there. You know, I like Nick Deeney, the Triple A catcher, but like if you have to call him up in May because someone got hurt, um, then you're probably uh, kind of scrambling for catchers at that point. Um, and I also get, you know, the point of some people wanted to wait later into spring when when guys start getting cut. and Maybe you can snag someone for for, for pretty much nothing. But I mean, when Maldonado's already out there for two and a half million dollars, you're basically getting him for nothing right there. So might as mm-hmm. well get the 2017 Gold Glove Award winner. So, um, yeah, I, I think the move is a no brainer. But uh, but, yeah, I, I do hope Gallagher gets some playing time. Uh, let's talk about some of those pitchers that the, the that. Martin Maldonado and Calvin Gallagher will be uh, catching. Uh, the rotation, you know, wasn't exactly a strength going into the season, and now, um, you know, it's it it's looks even less it, less so. Uh, when we talked to people about what they wanted to see out of spring training, I think people said, we want the Royals to stay healthy, and they really haven't <laughs> so far uh, through a couple, uh, just two weeks of spring training. We've already seen Salvi go down. Uh, Trevor Oaks last week had hip surgery, and he'll miss most of the year. He was a mm. candidate for the rotation. And now there's word that Danny Duffy is kind of questionable for the start of the season uh, with shoulder stiffness. He was your opening day starter the last two years. It sounds like he won't start on opening day. So, Matthew, how do you kind of see this rotation playing out? You know, they probably won't need five starters the first week, but by the second week, I, I imagine they probably will. Um, who
2: do you see making this rotation when the, can- when the team breaks north? I mean, it's, uh, it's beyond like Duffy, Keller, and, uh, Junis, you know, the, the guys that the half are just like less, less than, uh, how do I put this nicely? Uh, they're bad. They're just, they're just bad. Um, you know, I think Jorge Lopez is going to be the fourth guy. Um, you know, he's, uh, they, they almost have a perfect game last year, Jorge Lopez, you know, and yeah, he get, he got lucky, but that's, That's some talent there to at least, you know, pitch that long into the game, you know, and have good enough stuff that people aren't, you know, killing the ball, Um, you know, at least once it gets to the sixth inning or so. So, you know, he's shown some flashes. He's probably not great. Um, But, like, I honestly, if it were up to me, and it's not, (laughs) clearly, but if it were up to me, I would have it be, you know, Junis... um, Keller, Duffy, Lopez, and then Kyle Zimmer. Because if he's healthy, you know why not? That's that's
0: my philosophy there. What well, about you, Sean? Would you throw Zimmer out to the uh, Wolves and have him have him in the rotation to start?
2: No,
3: I mean I know there's a whole bullets in the arm theory, but um, no, I mean there's there's just no way. I mean it, it would just be like he needs a lot of rest, and he needs you know day he needs small amounts of time on the mound and time between time on the mound so i mean unless the theory is to use him as an opener um that's something else and and opener every five days that would be it um but at this point you can't trust him to go more than i don't know call it two innings and you know no more than maybe twice or so a week so he's a reliever at least at this point until he gets built out or shows some capability of being able to stay on the mound because i mean you'd hate to run him out there as a starter. And then he gets hurt, you know, irrevocably, um, you know, even though every time he's been hurt, it seems like it's been that. But, uh, yeah, I don't think I don't think he could make him as a starter yet.
0: And there's another guy that, uh, doesn't really fit into the youth movement that we should talk about making the rotation because I'm getting a lot of, of of I'm getting a funny feeling about Homer Bailey making this team now. Then uh, I mean, there's a, there was a thing in the, uh, an article in the Star from Lynn Worthy where Ned Yost is basically saying, you know what, we don't really care what he does in spring training. He's a veteran. So we trust that he'll be ready when when the bell strikes. Uh, This is Ned Yost, quote, uh, you know, we see a lot of guys coming to spring training, veteran guys, and I mean, they just really struggle during the spring to the point where it's like, oh man, why are we not releasing this guy? Why is this guy still here? Right, then bing, the magical bell rings. I've never heard it ring, but they say the bell rings. Then boom, they're back to who they are. So is Homer Bailey going to be back to who he is, Matthew? And will he be on this opening day roster?
2: Um I don't know Homer Bailey's kind of like the poster child of bad contract, right? Like yeah. the Reds are still paying millions and millions of dollars of, for him and he was never any, you know, good enough to justify that contract. He had like it was it was just not not great. Not great for anybody. Um I I wouldn't be surprised if he made the rotation um, and if not him, then uh, Ian Kennedy, right? The The guy that everybody forgets about because he's just so milk toast I guess. Is that how you pronounce it? I've actually never said it. milk milquitoast? Milk toast Milk-toast, as in milk, milk toast. that you put on your toast. Gotcha. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> he's just he's just not, not particularly interesting or good. But he's a veteran. He's been around for a while, you know.
0: I'm getting flashbacks ah. to Sidney Ponson or Brett Tomko. You know, one of those guys. Like, yeah, this, this is the kind of guy they bring in and like uh, have him yeah. start the year in the rotation. And then, like five starts in, they're like, "Oh, this is this is a terrible idea. Why did we do that?" This? <laughs> that bell didn't ring. Something's wrong. Yeah, with the bell that didn't ring. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I I guess I think Bailey has a decent shot of making this Ross rotation, especially with the injury to Duffy. I think they're going to want someone in there like that. Um, and I like I said before, I think it's going to be Junis or Keller on opening day uh, with the other one coming in second, you know, in the, on day two, probably in Kennedy uh, third in the rotation. Uh, and then I wouldn't be surprised if it was Bailey fourth with Phil Meyer up, you know, the second week to be the fifth starter. I, I think Jorge Lopez is probably the best option, but I wouldn't be surprised if he starts out in the bullpen. Uh, he's out of options, so I think he has to make the team. But, um, there's been a lot of people that like him as a reliever, so um, you know, I wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me to see him in that role. And which I think would be a little bit of a shame. I kind of want to see, you know, I, I to I want a guy to prove he's not a starter before I send him off to the bullpen. And um, but we'll see with Lopez. You know, he did, like you said, he threw that near perfect game last year. So uh, hopefully he showed enough to the Royals that they'll, they'll at least give him a chance this year. Uh, one guy who will definitely get a chance and c- could really carry this team this year is. Roberto Mondesi and you know spring training stats don't mean much of course but he is off to a really good start in Arizona of course what really excites us is his numbers last year so expectations are pretty high uh Jeffrey Flanagan was on the radio last week and he projected uh he kind of predicted Mondesi to hit 27 homers and steal 58 bags which is a pretty rare feat to do uh Zips projects him to hit 18 home runs and steal 39 bags but that's only in 118 games. If you project that out to close to 150 games, that's more like 23 homers and 50 steals. So the 20 home run, 50 steal club is a pretty, pretty small one. Uh, Sean, what, what would be a reasonable expectation uh, out of Monesty this year?
3: It seems like we're kind of building ourselves up a little bit. I mean, the whole Royals community as a whole Mm -hmm. is maybe getting a little too overboard or too kind of, putting the cart in front of the horse uh, a little early because I've already some people saying like he's going to finish top 5 in MVP voting um which I mean I guess is possible for anybody but like it's really really hard to finish even top 10 in MVP voting let alone top 5 um, but I had so here's my I guess prediction not projection prediction for Mondesi was the slash line of 255 295 455 uh, so call give him a 200 iso um sub 300 or so obp uh that puts you at around like a 95 wrc plus and i gave him three ish wins if he makes 600 plate appearances i know most people will point and say Oh, he's worth that and whatever it was 390 or whatever he got uh, last year but i mean you could see that he was running a huge huge BABIP, and uh his strikeouts did not really fix themselves that much so I've got my expectations tempered. I mean, he still could be a three-win player, and I think that's basically three-ish wins is pretty close to what the projection system have on him to begin with. Um, so I think for the time being, given that we really have no idea and he's got a huge you know, air bars around what he could be, I think kind of sticking with right around what the projections might say seems seem reasonable to me.
0: And, you know, I think everyone kind of expects his on-base to be around 300, if not lower. And I remember, Matthew, you wrote an article last year about how, you know, with Salvi, his low on-base percentage is always going to kind of limit how valuable he is. Uh, but do you feel that way with Mondesi? Because he does bring, I think, a little bit more to the table with the speed and defense uh, at a premium position. Uh, and then, what are you, what are you kind of expecting out of Mondesi this year? Yeah,
2: you know, that's that's an interesting point regarding, you know, uh, his his on-base percentage. Um, I I do think that. You know, if you have an on-base percentage as low as as Salvador Perez's, you know, 300 or so, it's really hard to be a good player. But one of the ways you can be a good player, despite that low on-base percentage, is to um, hit for power and to be a great base runner. And those were things, you know, Perez could hit for power, yeah, um, but he was such a terrible base runner, like one of the worst base runners in all of baseball. And that's a problem. If you think about it, like Javier Baez last year was running you know, with a really, really low walk rate, and he was having an MVP caliber season. Uh, despite that really low walk rate, um, that's really kind of the best case scenario for for Mondesi. Um So I think to to answer your question, I think it does it does apply, but not as much because Montezzi can steal fifty bags regardless of how often he gets on base. You know, a la Billy Hamilton, and um, you know do really well there. Um, as for what I expect of him, I. Bondisi is sort of like the perfect case in, you know, um, I don't think that the uh, projections are going to be very accurate on him. Um, I think one of two things is going to happen. I think either he will take the next step that people are sort of talking about. Uh, Sam Maliger had a really great and interesting article about him, you know, where people talked about him being, you know, some of the, one of the most athletic players they've ever seen and, and stuff like that. So I think – either the guy'll be like a five win player right he'll be like Lorenzo Cain back when Lorenzo Cain was playing with the Royals like that kind of good or he's just going to struggle all year I, I because he just doesn't hit for enough and he doesn't walk enough and his strikeout problems never go away and the power proves out to be a mirage i think there's is one or the other um i think he'll be he'll be good he's sort of like the classic breakout candidate so I think he'll be pretty good. I think he'll be at least good for four wins, but I would say that's maybe a 51 percent, you know, uh, sh- uh, certainty on my part. The other 49 percent is he's like worth less than a win, um, worth less than a win. Excuse me. Um, so eh, we'll see. It'll be really fascinating to watch either way. Yeah, it's interesting you
0: mentioned, mentioned Kane. I think um, I think people are underselling a little bit uh, how. Likely it is that Montesi stays healthy all year. I mean, this mm-hmm. is a guy that that really has had a lot of injury problems throughout his career. Um, he's never played like over 120 games in a season, uh, and I think when you're that when you're that fast and that athletic, um, I think sometimes uh, that may lead to more injuries. And I you know I remember Kane. you Remember he got hurt all the time early in his career, and he kind of had to learn how to, you know, know when to exert himself and know when to kind of take it easy so he could stay on the field. And I think Montesi. May have some of those issues. I mean, he's also a a very kind of—he's very athletic, but he's also got his build is very kind of thin and wiry, which you know I think there's a thinking that he may break down over 150 games or so. So I think there's a possibility he may not play as many games to get you know 20 home runs and 50 steals. And I think you raise an interesting point. Like he, you know, the the league could figure him out. I mean, you know, he had a very high swinging strike rate last year. Um, and you know, obviously, he has a low walk rate, so we know that he'll he'll chase a lot. And uh, now that there's there's more of a book on him, you know. Usually, you see guys take the league by storm, and then pitchers kind of figure them out, and they have games mm-hmm. them on them. And then then they're like, okay, I'll, I just you know throw it just off the plate. He's going to chase after it and either swing and miss or hit a, in a weak little grounder. So I think there's always a you know there's always a chance of a sophomore slump. You know, remember Carlos Beltron after he won Rookie of the Year, he had a terrible sophomore year and people thought he was maybe already, you know, a bust at that point and he came, he ended up adjusting and, and having a nice Hall of Fame type career. So we'll see what Monasy does. Um I think if he's but you know, I'm look, I'm optimistic about him. I think uh like you guys kinda say, like four or five wins should be in reach if he's healthy. Um uh, just because of speed and defense it is so, you know, overwhelming I think this early in his career. And, you know, he's got the ability to hit 20-25 home runs. So, 25 home runs, 50 steals, that doesn't seem that crazy for him. And that would, you know, only three players uh, I think in the last 35 years or 30 years have reached that mark. Uh, was it was Ricky Henderson and Barry Bonds in 1990 and Hanley Ramirez in 2007 are the only players uh, since 1990 that have reached that mark. So, you know, that's a pretty unique blend of, of speed and power that I think Mondesi could reach. Uh, but, you know, I, I think we also have to maybe pump the brakes a little bit and just be wary that you know the, the league could kind of figure him out and uh, and there's going to be there's going to be a lot of adjustments throughout his career, uh, but he does have the athletic athleticism and talent we haven't seen in quite a while. So,
2: um, Jack, you know, real enjoy. quick to add to your point there, uh, you know, you think about a couple of the other uh, players who had aggressive you know batting approaches like Mondesi does. Um, Salvador Perez started off really really hot and he's never been as, as good as he was in 2011 and 2012. The league kind of figured him out. I mean, if you think back to Game 7 of the 14 World Series, Madison Bumgarner didn't throw him a strike, right. and he just kept swinging. Uh, the other person is, you know, obviously a different game a little bit, but Yaseo Puig, right? He came out of the gate. He was so good, so electric, and he's been good since then, but he's never been, like, you know, Yasiel Puig in all caps good, um, you know? So just you can think of a couple of players right off the top where they uh, have aggressive, uh, you know, batting kind of uh, maybe some strikeout issues or some, some lack of walks um, and the league kind of figured them out. So yeah, we'll, we'll see. Um, hopefully he's more, you know, 2011 Perez than 2017 Perez, but you know, we'll, we'll see. That's, that's the fun part.
0: And if the Royals, I think, want to be contenders any time in the near future, they're going to have to have Monty figure out the league. And, and I know they're not expecting much out of this year, but, Matthew, you penned a piece that kind of dreamt a little bit and imagined a world where the Royals were contenders this year. So talk to us a little bit about what needs to happen this year. You know, it's far-fetched as it may be, but what would need to happen in your mind for the Royals to at least sniff contention this year?
2: Yeah, so I'm... Uh... I think the core part of why the Royals have been bad over the last few years, um, is that they have repeatedly missed with their, uh, first round draft picks, right? So they had Christian Cologne, they had Kyle Zimmer, they had Hunter Dozier, they had Bubbles Starling, and none of those players basically did anything in the big leagues. Um, minus, of course, Christian Cologne's very, very timely playoff baseball, but outside of that, you know, he, he couldn't stick. Um, I think that the core reasoning behind if... or not reasoning, I guess. This isn't very uh, uh, reason-heavy. But the core idea behind if the Royals are good this year, it will be because they suddenly get production from those first-round draft picks that they haven't gotten from the last five years. So, um, again, spring training stats mean nothing, but Bubba Starling has been just murdering the ball, right? What happens if Bubba Starling, you know... Um, Gets to the big leagues. He's a really great defender, like everyone thought, you know, like gold-glove caliber defender. And then kind of hits enough to be, like, a league average guy or a little bit more than that. Um, And Hunter Dozier, uh, you know, last year he got his, you know, his first experience of of, uh, big league baseball. And he was also sort of recovering from uh, hammock bone fracture, uh, which he had suffered the year prior, and those are famous for sapping a player's power, you know. Uh, he had that stretch in August where he just looked like vintage Eric Cosmer, excuse me, vintage odd-year Eric Hosmer. You know, there's there's a difference. <laughs> um, but so, and the other one is Zimmer, who is looked for the first time basically in his career, fingers crossed, knock on wood, et cetera, looked healthy, you know. So what if the Royals get an MVP caliber season from Mondesi, and then, just out of nowhere, these three talented first-round draft picks get, you know, breakout seasons all at once. I think that that forms the backbone of it. Um, and as, and as uh, you know, um, wishes go, it's not that terribly out of hand. It doesn't involve like a bunch of minor leaguers um, to to make. Uh, to make the, the team or to just like suddenly show something that they haven't, you know, Bubba Starling has been a great defender for his entire minor career. You know, when healthy Zimmer's been great, Uh Hunter Dozier has already, you know, played in the bigs. Um, but that's, I think where it starts, but also like it's, it's just not going to happen because it's Bubba Starling hasn't played any games in the big leagues and hasn't been able to hit at any level whatsoever. Zimmer's, been so hurt or so often hurt that he's a meme you know and hunter dozier you know you can wish about the the hamate bone fracture but uh it's not like he was hitting with particularly great uh field um or excuse me uh, he you know he wasn't walking a lot or striking out a lot uh striking out at a rate that you would want and that's sort of independent of his of his bone and his power so it's not great. And then also the pitching, which is, you know, you kind of have to think, oh, maybe Richard Lovelady and, and Josh Staumont sort of become really great relievers. Um, and you have to hope that Duffy and Junis and Keller um, are, you know, acceptable starters. And all of that put together is is just, it's it's not likely at all. But, you know, it's you can see it. Like, if the Royals are successful, it will be because... Their first round draft picks were good for the first time, and uh, they got just a couple of good bounces their way. So you started off, you know, kind of like the Joe Posnanski
0: there, and then I think I feel like the spirit of Sean crept into you, and and uh, and
3: realism kind of brought your
0: your <laughs> dream crash <laughs> yeah. into a halt. Yep. Uh,
3: I'm the pl- I mean I'm like the plague. I've been called that by many, <laughs> many people.
0: Sean, is is there any way? Is there a scenario you can imagine in which the Royals are?
3: semi-contenders this year um yeah in a draft (laughs) unless like jesus or the baseball equivalent of jesus joins the royals no i don't think so um i mean there's a world yeah where mondesey's worth six wins and keller's worth four or five and then um, they hit on some close luck in one-run games, and I mean, you know, <laughs> I think I've heard this from the Reds, some Reds fans who are like, "Oh yeah, if six or seven things go our way this year, we're going to be a little over 500 team." You know, they they're optimistic <laughs> in the case that it takes you know almost a half dozen or more things going right. So now, I mean, there really isn't. I mean, not that there's not that there's no talent on the team, but I mean. Like, you're banking on a lot. And, I mean, think about, like, the 2016 or <clears throat> the 2017 Royals who had, you know, Kane and Moustakis and Gordon and Hosmer and Perez. I mean, they had a whole slew of guys, and they could barely, what did they go, 1882 that year? Um, so, I mean, y- y- you need everything to break your way. You need a bunch of guys to take a step forward, and you need close luck in one-run games. I mean, you need good luck and Close one-run games, and you need probably nobody to get injured. <laughs> and then, <laughs> We're totally uh, too late on that. <laughs> I know it just takes so so much um, to turn a really bad team into even an okay team. Um, and then you need like the Indians or the Twins or the White Sox to not be good uh, because you've got to play them twenty whatever times a year. So now it's really not possible in any. Even in like the ninetieth percentile, I don't even think you're going to win, you know, eighty-two games.
0: You well, know, I was going to say that when you bring up the Reds, you know, the big difference between the Royals and the Reds is the Reds play in a division where all those teams are at least pretty, pretty decent to good. Yeah. Uh, whereas the Royals play in a division where it's possible that only the Indians are good, and the Indians, you know, if they stumble somehow, perhaps that creates an opening. But uh, yeah, I just don't see it. Either. It would, it would require, it would require, um, yeah, a lot to happen right, you know, to go right for the. Royals, which, you know, you know, most years when you make the playoffs, a lot of things have to go right, but it would have to be pretty extraordinary at this point. And, and, but I do agree with Matthew, yeah, if they get some production from their former first-round picks that have been disappointment so far, I mean, that could go a long way. I mean, getting Kyle Zimmer to reach his potential and stay healthy would uh, potentially give them, you know, a three to four wins-above-replacement player pitcher, which they don't have on their staff right now. Uh, and if Brad Keller can kind of um, you know, develop into a solid mid-rotation starter. If Jake Junis does the same, then you're you're talking about maybe a pretty decent pitching staff, but but still far from like what the the big boys are are putting up there. So it would be a nice step, I think. Uh, and I don't think you know even the most optimistic Royals fans really are 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 going to be bummed if the team doesn't make an, you know make a pennant run. Uh, I think we're really just looking for progress from this team. But uh, hey, it's it's spring training. We can all dream. Everyone's in first place right now. So don't yeah. let us dash your hopes of a Royals pennant.
2: Now, I, I what I will say is just without, like, mentioning specifics that sound rid, ridiculous, you know, as you keep going down the list of things that has to happen. The Royals last year, um, after basically the All-Star game and they purged all their veterans and, like, names that we'll forget, uh, and until we bring them back up in trivia sessions ten years from now, um, the team that was in the second half of the season with O'Hearn and Mondesi, and you know everyone, was radically different than the team that kicked that year off. Mm-hmm. And after the All Star break, they won at basically a seventy five game pace. So if you take that team, you know which which did require, uh, you know uh, O'Hern was great and Mondesi was really great. And all sorts of things um, but still like they played at a 75 win pace so if you can get another five out of somewhere else you know that team is gonna look a lot better um, than it did last year and that's without even the much improvement or you know any free agents of note um, or any of the Royals sort of next big wave of prospects showing up so I think you know, I think it's closer than you think, but also there's a very big difference between getting an 80-win team and a 85-88-win uh, team. You know, that's the real hard part, is getting a team that's legitimately good as opposed to one that can, you know, maybe squeak out a 500-season. Right. The second
3: half last year, the Royals had an 88 WRC-plus for that team, so they were still a good 12% below-league average hitters. I, I, I'm not saying anything against that, Matthew. I was just thinking, like, man— even <laughs> it took an 88 WRC plus, and they still cranked out that. So I don't know. It's uh, there's there's going to be some pain. That's all I can say. And the needed Arby's.
0: Well, I will say that too that it's not um, totally crazy for a bad team to get really good all of a sudden. Like yeah. the Chicago Cubs went from 73 wins in 2014 to 97 wins the next year. The Houston Astros went from uh, 111 losses in 2013 to just 92 the next year, to seventy to 86 wins in 2015. Of course, those teams, I think everyone kind of was, you know, like, oh yeah, they're about to get really good. Same with the Rays, I think when they went from 66 wins to like 96 wins uh, when they won their first pennant. Um, but everyone kind the of... The Twins! Ended-
2: Did you mention the Twins? No. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah, when the Twins a couple years ago? Yeah, the Twins, yeah. just a
2: couple of years ago, they went for like 59 wins and then they won like 80, 85 and then magically made the wild card because the AL teams were were crap that year.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, but, and a lot of those teams were collecting big time prospects. I think the one maybe that that strikes out as not a team that had a ton of like a ton of really good prospects was the 1989 Orioles. Were from my youth, uh, but that '88 team lost 107 games, and then the without many changes, the '89 team just like suddenly got a lot better, and they were in contention until the last weekend of the year. They ended up winning 87 games. So I guess if you really want to hope. Uh, and your Royals fan, you know, maybe cling to hope uh, with the nineteen eighty nine Orioles. So just just throwing it out there.
3: No, and I think and I think another thing to mention and got, and I don't mean to break this point, but also a reminder that that second half team last year got to play the White Sox, the Orioles, the Tigers, and the Twins. Uh, I mean, they played in like a span of, call it ten games. They played Detroit, Baltimore. Minnesota and the White Sox, basically, and then Detroit again. So, And then Cincinnati. They also played two against Cincinnati. So it was a soft schedule for sure, I think, in the second half.
0: Well, the good thing is they get to start the season out against the White Sox again. So, yeah. <laughs> Maybe they can carry that over. Um, speaking of the White Sox, I did want to thank uh, Brett Valentini again for being on the uh, show earlier to give us a preview of the White Sox. And, and Matthew and Sean, thank you for being on the show. Is there anything you want to plug while we're here uh, that you're working on?
2: Oh, uh, let's see. Sean, do you have anything? Hey, Max, you'll be at
3: opening day, right? I will be at opening day, yes. That's just what I was wondering. No, I don't have anything, but I uh, I don't know if I'm going to be – I don't know if we'll podcast before opening day, which maybe we will, but anyways. Yeah,
0: we'll do something okay. around that time. Maybe even we'll do a live – maybe we'll do a live podcast. I don't know. We haven't really decided what we're going to do, but we'll, we'll do uh, – we're definitely going to do start doing the podcast on a more regular basis. Okay, uh, cool. we'll try, probably expect one every week. Um, and we may even start adding some podcasts. I know there's been some interest from a couple of people that want to add podcasts uh, to the Royals Review Radio Network. So look for that this upcoming season. Uh, I'm going to be that, doing yeah, an ahead.
3: Office podcast, a Seinfeld podcast, <laughs> and an Old Sunny podcast. I do so want a Game can... of
0: Thrones podcast because the yeah. Thrones is coming up and I know we've got a few fans.
3: Yeah. That would be fun. As long as Jeremy's not on there, because we don't agree on anything with Game of Thrones.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So you can expect all that coming up this season. And uh, Sean, I guess, why don't you take us
3: out? I got to get a new catchphrase. I've been thinking about this. (laughs) But uh, anyways, have many, many good days.